and welcome to Postcards to the Future, the podcast that listens into the artists, producers, publishers and directors who are shaping the future of arts and culture. I'm David Micklem and today my guest is Farooq Chowdhury, co-founder of the world-renowned Akram Khan Dance Company and one of the UK's leading producers. Through a 20-year collaboration, Farouk has built a company that has provided the optimum conditions for Akram's development as an artist. He's built a complex web of relationships and partnerships right across the world, blurring boundaries between cultures, art forms, and styles of presentation. He's also the founder of Sky Blue Productions, which nurtures younger artists of colour, and he's the CEO and creative director for China House Arts in London. Last year, he was awarded an OBE for his services to dance and dance production, and was appointed a Tate Artist Trustee. In his 60th year, we find him contemplating possible futures for arts and culture in the UK. In this podcast, he talks about trusting your instincts, the need for radical change, and acknowledging and letting go of power. He talks passionately about equality, diversity, and inclusion, and says that beautiful things happen when different worlds meet. Hey, Farouk, it's great to see you. How are you doing? I'm good, David. Not bad. Fantastic. Good days and bad days, but not bad today. Good, good. It'd be great to kick off and just start to hear how you've been spending the last few months, how they've been for you. Well, it's been, you know, it's been a series of different experiences, actually. I mean, the initial uh, reaction to COVID was just to get into the office and plan for the worst case scenario, do all those crisis budgets, thinking about how we're going to get through through the different situations. I mean, at the initial thing, I think we'll be over by August, to be honest. And then what would happen if we didn't tour until, you know, lost all our touring by September, by the end of the year. So there was a lot of this work just to give us reassurance, which was important. A few weeks after that, we went into this kind of complete kind of tsunami of creativity, you know. I, I think it happened nationally, in fact. You felt that everyone needed to get this stuff out of them and say something and express how they feel. So Akram Khan Company is where I'm, you know, executive producer and co-founder. I was writing these stories of hope. Akram was doing these podcasts. And we were just putting stuff out there, but, you know, not in the kind of knee-jerk way initially, where, you know, a lot of companies, especially arts organizations, were just showing their back catalogue. You know, we stopped that, really, and it was good. And we thought about how can we put something out that was kind of meaningful and also express how we felt in this new moment in time, not just you know, a record of our past. So I felt we did a great job with that. And, and it was a short project that lasted about seven weeks. And, and I think people really connected to it very well. And then as soon as that passed, I just, I collapsed into this incredible sense of insecurity about who am I? Why am I here? You know, because I couldn't do the thing I'm meant to be doing. I lost my sense of identity because I wasn't going into theatre, wasn't going into a rehearsal studio. We weren't touring. And that was a strange kind of uh, black hole of despair. Uh, But anyway, it was good because being down in that dark hole, I began to think about myself, you know, much more seriously and look at the things that I felt I was doing well and was not doing so well and, you know, and just pull myself out of it, almost in a transformed sense of self, mm-hmm. um, feeling a lot lighter. And then since then, it's been lots of Zoom meetings, you know, and trying to be creative again. And I'm working on another project with a new company I'm working for called China House Arts, which is a new dance production. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's good. I mean, now it's a bit more sporadic. But I feel mm-hmm. like I'm not back to where I was before. There's a new me emerging. And tell me a bit about that. When you're in those sort of dark, darker days, when you're sort of having yeah. some of those existential thoughts about identity and who you are, what, 
where's that taken you? What are some of the positives that are coming out of that, do you think? You know, David, in, in the arts, and I suppose in most people in life, we get really busy. We get on this treadmill, we churn stuff out. Sometimes we churn out stuff we don't even need, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you begin to really question whether, what is the importance of what we do? So being in that dark space, I began to reflect, you know, quite in a very quiet way about the things I'm doing. Am I doing the right things? Am I doing the things that I need or the things I want, you know, and figuring out the difference. And I think what was also really important was this, you know, what do I stand for? Mm-hmm. You know, I began to question my own moral compass and my own ethics as a professional and thinking about, you know, are they going in a direction that makes sense? Or am I'm just kind of, you know, willy nilly, just being caught in the slipstream of me doing my job. So it was it was wrestling with those things. And at the same time, the whole Black Lives Matter issue emerged, which then, as you know, as a person of colour growing up in, in England in the 60s, I, you know, I experienced an incredible amount of racism. And then as I became a professional and found, you know, my way in life and began to build my own privileges, I kind of parked that on the side. But this whole this whole movement somehow unlocked me and it came out and I had to then also deal with, filter out all the stuff in that process, which was I could work with or the stuff that could be destructive to me. Mm-hmm. I want to talk more about Black Lives Matter. We, we're recording this a couple of months after the tragic death of George Floyd. And I'm wondering how that tragedy and then the unfolding of the kind of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement has impacted on your thinking around kind of arts and culture. What are some of the implications you think that might have for our our sectors, whether that's dance or or more broadly uh, a cultural sector? I think it has huge implications, and and I think we've got away with it for so long. If I'm going to be honest, I think the arts and and, and culture are very liberal, empathetic, generous. You know, poetic. Try to you know embrace all these global narratives in terms of what they put out there, like, you know, like Akram Khan Company or the Tate, on which I'm also an art trustee aboard. And that looks like we're doing it right. But actually, when you really look inwards and you see, oh, my God, there's a lot of institutional, deep, unconscious stuff that's happening, you know, as well as systemic stuff, which we're, we're dealing, which we have not addressed Mm-hmm. We are not doing enough. And also one of the, the thrilling things and also challenging things is I'm now on two racial equality task forces for Tate as well as at Sadler's Wells. And it's been hard, you know, David. It's like, you know, having to really look at yourself and say, are we doing enough? Mm-hmm. You know, how much more could we do? How much have we fallen behind? And then the hardest thing of all, because to make a change, you have to admit you've made a mistake. Yep. You have to admit you failed, not just ignore that says, yes, these are our new policies. This is what we're going to do. And I think the arts, we get away with that. We ignore the problem. Yep. We don't accept the problem. We just get on with, you know, creating a new policy and something that we're going to action. And it almost masks the real problem. I think we also have a tendency as a sector to sort of fiddle at the edges, at the periphery, and think, well, we need to make a a 5% change here or a 10% change here. But I guess what I'm hearing you say is maybe there needs to be a 50% change. Maybe we need a radical rethink of who gets a stake in arts and culture, who gets to say what it is, where it happens. Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, whose stories are we telling, you know, you know, and who chooses those stories? You know, I mean, I know from my work in working in dance, I mean, dance has been a great success story in Britain. But also, what's also happened in the last 10 years, it's become very transactional between the people who have power. And now just stopping for a moment, reflecting, it's really clear that loads of people's stories, perspectives are being left out 
You know, we're kind of upholding a certain aesthetic of excellence. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe in the bottom of my heart now, diversity, you know, leads to excellence. But what do we mean by diversity? These are buzzwords that we've used that we've lost the meaning of. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. We, you know, it's, 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 you know, even look, I'm at Akram Khan, you know, on the surface of it, we're a very diverse company. We, you know, we're both South Asians, me and Akram, myself, you know, our dancers across the globe, you know, black dancers, Asian dancers, East Asian dancers, and, you know, our board. But actually, we haven't worked a lot with black collaborators. Mm -hmm. And I had that conversation with Akram. I says, look, Akram, we're failing on this front. We haven't made the effort. We haven't gone outside of our normal channels to search for talent from places that we are unfamiliar with. What fruit then are some of the kind of practical things that you're thinking about in those conversations you're having with Akram around yeah. really wanting to kind of shift how work is made, who it's made with, uh, those things. What are some of the practical pieces of advice you might give a kind of 25-year-old fruit who was listening to you now? Well, look, you know, it's, this is a huge thing. You know, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. And that was the obvious thing, you know, that the thought that came to my mind. I mean, I think if we look at it like one big uh, monolith of a problem, we ain't going to solve it. I think we have to break it down into different kinds of buckets. You know, what are we doing about staffing? What are we doing about touring? What are we doing about recruitment? You know, how do we change things? And to change things, we have to change our choices. And, and that's the thing. Are we just regurgitating the old choices? So I wish I could say something a, a little bit, but you know, it, it really is. Look, the practical thing I would say now, except the fact this is going to be awkward, it's going to be clumsy, it's going to be ugly, and we're not going to know what we're doing mm -hmm. for a while because we're moving from a system that we're so used to into something that feels unfamiliar. And we just can't seamlessly make that shift. So I think the practical things, except the awkwardness that we're going to see, except the, the clumsy things that we will say and be embarrassed about and be ashamed of, and, and on the understanding that this is moving towards a better place. Mm -hmm. You reminded me of a brilliant uh, colleague of mine at Battersea Arts Centre who once said, um, you've got to let go to let come. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering what you might think we need to let go of. I mean, in, in that context, you're talking about relinquishing some stuff too, about in order to create some space in which new things can happen, new things can emerge. I mean, that is the massive problem. I think we, we're strange, we human beings, because most of the time we get up in the morning and live in our past. Mm -hmm. We live in the recordings of our past. You know, we've got those all programmed in into our, into our behaviours and our experiences and our thoughts and our choices. And the first thing we have to do is get some self-awareness of that habit that we're doing and the habit that we need to change, you know. And, you know, and once we do that, that creates a space. And that space, then we're going to begin then to kind of look look at it and say, what can we do with this new space that we're creating? But certainly, I think you know things we can let go of. What do we consider to be excellence? Mm -hmm. What do we consider to be the right way to choose someone? You know, how do we measure people when we choose them? Because we are live, we're living in this incredible world of measurement. Someone has to come from Oxford with a first degree to be a leader in the arts. But that's rubbish, mm -hmm. David. I mean, we know that people's life stories are different. You know, someone could have come off a council state in Lambeth and got a 2-2, but be just as brilliant. And we have to accept that brilliance has a different pathway. And then once we find that brilliance, then we have to then defend and cover those people's backs and so that we can accelerate, you know, people of colour into leadership roles and to make decisions, but not shaped in the image of the dominant culture yeah. that pre-existed. It's really important that we allow their perspectives, their voices to be heard and on their own terms and not be adjusted to fit into to what we're doing. And that's where I then challenge the word of inclusion, inclusion, into, including into what? 
yeah, not an old model. Not an old model, definitely. That's really useful. One of the things that's been cropping up in this culture reset program that you will have heard too, and that the pandemic is exposing is some of the extremes in our cultural sector, by which I mean the £1.57 billion that's been offered by the government to kind of bail out the crown jewels is opening up a debate about those that are the kind of protectors of the crown jewels and those Mm. who want to see a sort of fundamental reboot of arts and culture, who gets to make it, where it happens, how we describe it, all those other things. Do you want to reflect a bit on that, the kind of, you know, the the preservation of a kind of 75 years of established ways of doing things versus a kind of revolutionary approach to rethinking arts and culture in this country? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, that's the, where, I get, where I get kind of uncomfortable is the idea of a preservation of, of a heritage, of a legacy, because actually what it really is, is a preservation of a memory. You know, and that way I can accept it, you know, but for us to move forward, to see a new futures, to reshape globalism, reshape our vision of the future, it's important to be connected with memory. But we have this strange divide, you know, like, like you just mentioned about, you know, there's a fear that they're, all the flagships, all the precious gems of our heritage and our culture are going to be, you know, preserved at the expense of something else. But it's not like that. This is, this is a dynamic where they have to coexist and we have to rebalance that power because we do need memory to see a future. You know, and, and any, anyone who works in the arts will say that, you know, so many great artists, you know, they almost subconsciously tap into what they know, what they've learned, what they remember, you know, in their bodies, in their imagination and take that forward into reshaping the future. But I would be hugely disappointed if it ends up being, you know, a one sided affair you know, and creating and almost perpetuating this notion of otherness. Yeah. And, and again, that uncomfortable thing, which we don't often talk about, which we know exists all the time, is this horrible class system that we live with in the UK. I wanted to come on and talk a bit about class because we've talked about a little bit about race and racial injustice. You've had an extraordinary journey coming from a, a working class background, um, a difficult upbringing. Can you talk a bit about that and the experience of being somebody who's now, I guess, part of the establishment in your role uh, as co-founder of Akron? Khan Dance Company. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's it was completely unconventional. You know, I was brought up in, like I said earlier, England in the sixties. You know, we were came from Pakistan, experienced terrible racism, which impacted so badly on my family life, and so I ended up getting into trouble as a youngster. You know, I left school at twelve, got involved in criminal gangs, got put in care at fourteen. And then at 15, went to a therapeutic community to 21, where the only thing that the only obligation I really had was to make sure that we made decisions collectively and we cooked and cleaned for each other. And I didn't really educate myself to the age of like 18 years old. I was self-taught and went to uni at 21. But I discovered dance almost accidentally at 17 when one of the staff said, do you want to go to London and watch something at Sadler's Wells Theatre? So I've known what it's like not to have. I've known what it's like to have doors shut on me, but I've also known the power of self-determination, of being able to open a door and find your way through. And a lot of it was pretty painful for the, in the early part of my career. And, and dance was so important for me because it was, I think it's one of those great art forms because it's so kind of, you know, class, colour, creed, borders, somehow don't seem to get in the same way as in some of the other arts. So I, I felt like I found a voice, which is really important because the most important thing in life is to, you know, for us is to find a voice in which really authentically expresses who we, our inner and outer worlds and that relationship between it. So fast forward, fast forward, I end up 
you know, getting a great dance career, working with Akram. And then I'm on the other side. I, I find myself in a position of privilege, you know, and but I've known what it's like not to have it. And now what I really begin to, I'm really, you know, holding on to fiercely is that I have to use this privilege in a really constructive, positive, impactful way. It's not something I own. It's something I have to give away, you know, and that was where the difference will happen. I want to hear more about that, Farouk, about sort of the, the idea of relinquishing some of the power that you've accreted over your career. Tell me yeah. a bit about practically how that might play out in the world of dance, which you operate within and perhaps more widely across the cultural sector. Sure. I mean, so here are some things I'm doing where I think I'm using my privilege uh, in a positive way. So, you know, I've created my own company about five years ago called Sky Blue Productions. And one of the main purpose of that company is to nurture artists of of colour, but also with hybrid languages who, you know, someone who comes from, you know, contemporary dance and street dance or African dance or a, a Chinese dancer who works with, you know, contemporary. And I've kind of supported them with my money and time and resources to help build their careers. But in the same way, very much how I nurtured Akram at the beginning when I sold my flat to pay for his first production. And I'm very committed to that. And also, you know, I'm involved in lots of mentoring programs. I was involved in setting up an MA course at a studio centre, which, you know, for dance producers. So it's about giving away everything I have to the next generation as, as much as I possibly can do within the limitations of a real life, you know, because mm. <laughs> I'm not, and, 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 then make, and now I'm making those choices, but I'm not just focusing it on the UK, I'm focusing it on, you know, work I'm doing in China and India. I'm very attached to the Asian world for some obvious reasons, because I love the narratives that come out and I, I think it's really important to make sure that they're seen globally. So the last uh, four years, I've worked a lot with China and I'm now just involved in setting up a new foundation called China House Arts, which is also about nurturing new talent. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these things I'm not getting paid for and I'm really happy to do that. And, and I, want to, I, don't want to be, I don't want them to be tokenistic. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that when I do these things, they are sustainable. So therefore what I'm realising, there's a limit to how much I can do if I want to make sure it lasts for a long time and it has lasting change. Mm -hmm. And also through Akram Khan, we're really looking at legacy, how much we can share our knowledge, experience, wisdom, and also, you know, in a process to keep learning because it, the interesting thing about giving away is that you end up learning more. Do you, you know what I mean? You don't protect this idea of this wealth that you have, you know. And I'm also I'm a big believer, if we, we're caught up in the idea that you own something, then you're going to stay stagnated. Mm -hmm. So it's about giving away, it's creating space to learn from a new generation, not being dismissive of, of the new generation, even though it, it freaks me out the way some young people live. And I've got two young daughters who are you know, a testament to that, that new energy, that new kind of engagement with the world. So, yeah, I think I'll just keep doing it. And actually invigorates me quite a lot. Um, I'm finding it really, really, uh, it's helping to reshape my view of the world. I think that's one of the things I've really taken from listening to you speak in other contexts before is that sense that, and I hope you don't mind me calling you an elder states person, but you're, <laughs> um, you're a man of a certain age. But that sense that I get from you throughout your career is that you've always been hungry for that learning. We were talking just before we started recording about the producer's book, which you and I worked on yeah. uh, 14 or so years ago now. Um, you were one of our featured uh, interviewees for that book. And you were reflecting back on that and how much has changed for you since then and how much you've learned even in the second half of your career since that book mm. was published. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I, I read that 
the article of uh, like a few years ago and I thought, God, that's not me anymore. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's a DNA, there's an essence of every human being. But, you know, how much I've learned, how much I've grown, how much I've rejected along the way. And I think, again, I'm hungry to learn. I think curiosity is such an essential part of who I am. And I think of people who work in the arts nation, I think of humanity. I don't think we value curiosity enough. We, we call it the acquisition of skills. And we have all these lovely terms that give it a tangible value, but we don't emphasize enough the intangible value of life and ourselves. So, you know, being curious, being learning, but to learn again, it's a constant process of creation and destruction. I think Picasso said that once, to every act of creation is an act of destruction first. So, and this is not a problem for me because people say, well, then you're not consistent and, you know, and you're not the same person were a few years ago. So, so be it. That's how it works. You know, we're constantly in a process of, of osmosis, but also being chrysalis where we shed our old self and transform ourselves into something new. And I think that's a very exciting energy. I feel it. I can feel it on the podcast. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, you talked a bit about China and your connection to the Chinese project. I'm wondering how do we keep art and culture international in a world that might feel like it's shrinking, in a world where nationalism is on the uprise and where Brexit is, you know, is a part of our future. How do we kind yeah. of keep not just Akram Khan, but our kind of international dialogues maintained and, and, and flourishing, do you think? I mean, that's going to be a big challenge, David. And I think this is really going to shape and reset you know, the future of the arts and culture. And it can't be on this import-export idea in terms of how we've collaborated with people in the past, you know. I think it, it requires more meaningful engagement with different countries, actually trying to understand how people see the world, experience the world, you know, express their behaviours. And I'm learning that a lot through working with China because it is a fabulous culture with an ocean of talent. But there are different processes, you know, to arriving at how one expresses themselves and the vision of the world. And it is a way of finding, you know, again, it comes back to this word we use a lot, collaboration. But collaboration in a different way, not collaboration in the old sense that I've got sense of a bunch of skills, you've got a bunch of skills, let's get together and make it, you know, and get be more than some of our parts. I think the new collaboration means going into a space being empty. Being empty, the person has to be empty and creating something from emptiness. Mm -hmm. um, and that takes longer and a more sustained effort will require more investment, more listening than talking, you know, and, and, and actually really beginning to kind of listen quietly, intently to what matters to people. So I think with China, I'm really just, you know, I'm, I'm working on this project now called The Butterfly Lovers, which is one of their most revered love stories, but also a story of hope and knowledge and how it transforms the world. And this was written 15 centuries ago. Um, and, and trying to give it a contemporary energy, but also to respect its tradition, but give it, you know, a new view of the world, you know, and a new perspective of Chinese culture. And I mean, I think it needs more patience. It needs more consistency. It needs more sacrifice mm -hmm. and a deeper engagement. You just can't drop in, get your budget, put a project together. You know, if you do that project, you can get 10 dates in China. You know that to project, you can get 10 dates in the UK. We have to think beyond that. Mm -hmm. We have to think about what does it mean to us and get back to an ethical connection, you know, is this sounds very idealistic and maybe even a little bit romantic, but I'm a real believer that beautiful things happen when different worlds meet. So, you know, it, yeah, it, it's an encounter. It's, it's deeper, it's more meaningful. And, uh, and, and it is a destruction of the old systems and processes. And am I hearing an implication that might be also more environmentally sustainable too? 
Absolutely. So I think one of the things that came out of COVID was assessing, because before COVID, there was the whole issue of what we're doing with environmentalism and being more environmentally, you know, we're touring, friendly, we're touring. And we know that we're not being great. We tour a lot. We do 72% of our year is on the road, you know, mobilizing people around the world. And that's not great. So is there a way that we can create work, which is not just about, you know, taking our company somewhere, but creating it with a company so then they can tour it within their region or territory and not have to spend, you know, loads of carbon dollars or or pounds, you know, mobilizing people. And therefore, it cannot just go to capital cities like Beijing or Shanghai, but it goes to all those second, third tier cities. And it has a much widespread uh, engagement, but also a feeling that it's coming from a narrative that is familiar. But I do, I do fear nationalism. I do feel populism. I do feel localism because, you know, you know, we learn from from each other through art and kind. The globalist globalism of art and culture is essential, but we need to reshape it. Mm-hmm. We started off this conversation through talking about identity and sort of perhaps sometimes a loss of a sense of identity when the thing that we tend to spend most of our time doing gets stopped. In this case, by a pandemic. Yeah. I've heard you talk about another part of your identity before, which is your creative identity, your your identity as an artist. Tell us yeah. a bit about where that's come from and how that's manifesting itself for you right now. This year was supposed to be a year of numbers for me. So in September, in the period between September the 11th and October the 5th, it was going to be my 60th birthday, the 20th anniversary of Akran Calm, and the first time I directed a show in my career, So, which is this Chinese show I mentioned earlier. And I feel myself shifting towards this, the role of director from the role of producer. And this is just a most fascinating kind of mind transference, you know, where the producer who kind of knows where he wants to go, instinctive, you know, is, is incessantly caught up with contextualization. You know, that's where the money comes from. That's where the market is. That's where the fun, you know. And this director who needs to be in a more quiet sense of chaos and, and you know, without really knowing where, in, where he or she wants to go and being there long enough to kind of mine ideas from places that kind of, both terrify you, but fascinate you, you know? And so it's really funny with me kind of actually, I have to really tell this producer guy, get out of my head, go and sit in the corner, leave me alone. (laughs) Don't get in the way, you know? And then sometimes I find the director head, you know, like dreaming and imagining ideas and thinking, "Uh oh, I need a producer here to put the brakes on, you know? So it's a really, really interesting kind of, uh, double consciousness that I'm dealing with right now, but I'm actually loving it. And I, and you know, and it, look, I know as well as the director, if this show doesn't get accepted or, or appreciated, boy, oh boy, do I get it in the neck. And, and there's this, you know, there's a immense amount of vulnerability that comes with being the creative force behind something. But, you know, if it works, it will be immensely rewarding for me. And I hope to the people who engage with it. And it could be the beginning of a whole next decade of the way I work and engage in arts and culture for myself and the people I work with. And are you imagining for you might compartmentalise those two aspects of your life? So maintaining your role as a producer and separately maintaining a career as a director? Or are you going to relinquish one to support the other? Or is it early days? It's early days. And I'm a big believer that, I, you know, as we create momentum, as we begin a process of creativity, I think it's really important to listen to it and let it tell you where to go next. You know, we're so hardwired to be in control, to anticipate, to be strategic, to kind of set the objective, set the goal. And I think that's okay. I think it's important to have those things. But I also think it's important to 
occasionally just surrender to yourself to the fact that you don't have the answers. You're not the smartest person in the room. You don't know where it's going to go. And just let listen to it well enough so it can tell you where to go. So trust my instincts. I do believe God gave us instincts for a reason. And from my limited experience of doing that, when you do that, that can be electrifying. When you're prepared to sort of let go of all that stuff, let go of the, the producer that's got a, a spreadsheet and a timetable and a budget and all that stuff and just be prepared to not know the answers and to go on a journey. That's hugely exciting. I must say, I, I, I've loved, and this has been one of the real exciting things of the last sort of eight months. And, uh, and it's kept me kind of invigorated and feeling vital through COVID, you know, through the lockdown, you know, getting the new set designs, talking to the composer, you know, and, and it's just this amazing sense of discovery, you know, and, and you're not just discovering something that s- sits outside of you. You know, hopefully I'm discovering something that feels like a truth to me. It feels personal. And, and I think I love that. And I think maybe this is, you know, this is having gone, if I would look back and when I'm 80 or 90 or everywhere I get to, I will see this arc in my life and it will somehow make sense. Yeah. Or maybe it won't, but that's, that's okay. And, but I think this is an important shift in me. And, you know, let's see, in, you know, five years from now, maybe I will be producer and director. I'll find a, a system that will allow them to exist, but also not coexist. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Fantastic. It'll make all sense to you if it doesn't make sense to anybody else. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. looking back on those twin aspects. We're going to finish up in a moment, but I guess I just wanted to go back to this notion of a culture reset more widely. And one of the consistent things I'm hearing is that there are a limited number of gatekeepers, you know, in the world of dance, but also right across the, the arts and cultural sector who are holding on to the power, who've sort of climbed the slippery, greasy pole and have got to a position of power and aren't prepared to relinquish it. And I just wanted to come back to some of the themes that you've picked up on through this conversation, Farouk, and perhaps ask you what you might say to them. You know, if you had the ear, I'm sure you have the ear of many of these um, cultural gatekeepers, what might you be whispering or shouting through a megaphone at them uh, in this particular moment? Well, I think it comes back again, David, you know, admit you've got it wrong. Admit where you're failing. Admit that you've got to, um, that you don't have all the answers. Admit that you don't understand certain things. You know, and that you're going to need people to help you understand them. And, you know, and maybe, oh, it's the hardest thing to tell people to relinquish power, isn't it? Because people get seduced by power and it's very attractive. And I know it myself. I'm not going to pretend, you know, those moments when I've, I've got power, it, it, you know, it's, it's so expansive. You feel, and, and this is a very dangerous energy. But I, I, think, I think they have to plan for transition, you know, because we can't have the same voices. We can't have the same idea of leadership anymore. And look, and what I can tell you, David, some people that are in power are really wholeheartedly embracing it. They're, you know, mm-hmm. you know, some of the leaders are, I'm so impressed by the courage, because it needs a lot of courage and commitment and sustained commitment to change. So I feel they have to see the world more than themselves. Yeah. And, and without naming names, it would be inappropriate to name names on a public podcast. But just what yeah. are some of the qualities and attributes do you think of those leaders who are making a big change, who you're seeing taking a brave step? Um, doing the brave thing, being courageous? I think vulnerability. You know, I think that's uh, vulnerability and acceptance are the two most strongest qualities, accepting that they've not been getting it right, the vulnerability to admit to it, and, and also not taking lead in the conversations that are, t- are, are ensuing of the transitionary process. You know, I think they, they've been brilliant in passing the baton over to people who may know it better themselves or be made more connected. Um and, and recognising that and standing back and also not being defensive. 
not getting caught up in this, this that I've got to defend certain things, you know, but take time to listen and, but recognize that also we're in a safe space, you know, that when we can talk to each other, we can challenge each other, but in a safe space. And that's important. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's from what I, in my world, I'm seeing some really fantastic shifts, you know, and, and again, and I, I got a real sense that these people are in it for the long game. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about them. It's, it's about society. It's about, you know, art and culture as a bigger thing that, you know, brings color and inspiration and a sense of belonging in our lives. It's really important for us. It's, and and one, no one person, you know, can do that. So uh, I hope that, you know, in the arts and culture elsewhere, the Arts Council, the British Council, you know, and, and all these big behemoths of power are beginning to recognize it. But, you know, but we'll see. We'll see. I, at the moment, I feel very encouraged. Brilliant. Brilliant. And final question is just about those people who are kind of perhaps just emerging now. Some of those artists that you're nurturing, perhaps some of the uh, younger voices that you're seeing in the world of dance and more widely. What's inspiring you? You were talking about your kids and some of the things that are really challenging you. But what's inspiring yeah. you from that younger generation uh, in terms of practice? It's really simple. They're just making me see things differently. Yeah, you know, you know I think, and I think that's what's so fascinating. You, you, they get to kind of deconstruct and question my own ideas and my own perspectives. And I mean, honestly, you know, piece. I mean, I can name like people like Dixon MBI, you know, who's you know who's worked with Russell Malafant, who's 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 an urban artist but contemporary, but also the strong Cameroonian roots. You know, the, the, there's a beautiful Chinese dancer who came from an Aboriginal village in China with no dance training, but her choices are so otherworldly. And in a way, what inspires me about them most is that I feel they're deeply rooted in history, but they have a very far gaze ahead. And what inspires me as well is that they don't seem to be, they're not shaped in the image of the dominant culture. And also they're offering me an alternative way of being and, and seeing the world. And I think that's incredible. It's a new energy. Some people are a bit frightened by it. And I, and I think also we must remember another area which we are, which needs to really be considered are the critics, the, the people who judge, you know, because they are judging with, I, I feel, and I'm not going to point names or name names, but, uh, some people are judging with an old vision of the world. And they, like you, need to be listening listening differently to a young generation. Yeah, listening differently. And people need to step aside and, and, and judge things differently. But yeah, no, the energy is amazing. And the competence, you know, the competence of, of youth. We, you know, it's easy for me to say, ah, they, my day, we were a lot tougher. We knew what it was to sacrifice. Blah. I didn't have any money. I, you know. But actually, we have to get those horrible, that's another narrative we have to discard. Yep. And just see really what people are doing and be empathetic. Fantastic. Farouk, I could talk to you all day, but we're out of time. That is an incredible contribution to our podcast series. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. It was fun talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Postcast to the Future. If you subscribe to the series, then the next episode will seamlessly drop into your podcast platform. Postcast to the Future is a People Make It Work project devised and produced by Claire Doherty and David Micklem for the Culture Reset Programme, which is funded by the ever-brilliant Gulbenkian Foundation.